people in Web3 care about Bored Apes because of the cult of it being like one of the first really successful PFPs and all of the exclusivity that's tied to. I don't see why anyone outside of Web3 should give a shit about a relatively okay but not that great illustration of an ape. Hello and welcome to the 32nd episode of Floorcast, the NFT podcast. I am joined once again by multiple C's and we've got the original crew back on the show, starting with Corwin. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing wonderfully, Pat. The weather's nice out, it's not too hot, it's raining, it's it's just, it's great. Things are going so amazing here. So you're really adapting to New York life, I hear. You're enjoying yourself, collecting art still, going to the gym, drinking so on and so forth. I just want to shout out Chris Kay for being on the show uh, last week. That was awesome. Loads of people said that they enjoyed that. So hopefully he can come on again at some point soon. But speaking of Chris's, Chris Madden also rejoining us today. How are you doing, sir? Good. I am uh, another decent Chris. <laughs> decent. Fair enough. Curtis, how are you, sir? Doing much better than I was last week. Sad I missed it, but it was great to hear some new voices on the pod. But uh yeah, just happy to dive into this with the the old crew. You feeling better now? I'm on the mend. Energy and everything is all good. I just have like the remnants of like a, a typical cold, so much, much better. Great to hear. Coin, you mentioned the weather is good in New York. Over in London, it's getting quite grey, but it's still quite hot, which is, uh, you know, the usual muggy city warmth, and it's disgusting. I'm still sweating, and uh, I don't know what to do with myself. Right, because Corwin has no response to that, we'll get straight into our topics for this week. And first and foremost, don't call it a comeback, but the Pudgy Penguins might well be back. So for those of you who don't know who Pudgy Penguins are, they are a NFT project, 10k of them, of, as it says on the tin, Pudgy Penguins. Uh, they look quite cute. They were founded by a guy called Cole, who is slightly dubious in that he's been called a scammer a lot in the NFT community. I think Zach BSD has done a couple of threads on him and a few people have called him out. But they were actually taken over for 750 in terms of IP and rights as a project. I think at the back end of last year or during the kind of NFT dump of this year. And uh, the reason why this is a story is that someone has spent 400 ETH on the rarest uh, pudgy penguin this week and uh, yeah a lot of people were quite excited about it i think people like the penguins in general they probably dislike the fact that someone who is been accused of being a scammer was running it but um yeah this this was an interesting one Corwin, this is something that you flagged. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the Pudgy Penguin revival. Yes, yeah, so Pudgy Penguins announced that they're going to start selling toys like in store. Like they have like their own like plushies and stuff. And I think that's what kicked off the bull run for them again. But their their floor price, I think, went from like 1.1 to about just over four ETH. And then uh they've just been having crazy sales. Uh, I think like they just had what was it, six hundred ETH? ETH sale or 400 ETH sale it came out to I think it was like $600,000 for like the rarest one in the collection and it seems like there's like a lot of hype around it um, a lot of the influencers are starting to put it as their profile pictures again I don't know if this means anything like NFT markets back or anything or someone just had a lot of ETH that they want to spend I know a lot of the community like the NFT community on Twitter were talking like a lot of crap though 
being like, oh, like, oh, like, why would you spend like this much ETH on like a picture of a penguin? And it's weird because it's like a lot of like the ape people who have like apes as their profile pictures are the ones saying that. And people are like, what are you talking about? Like, why are we making fun of someone else in our community for wanting to spend money what they want to spend money on? Right. Which I don't feel like is fair necessarily. I think we should just all stick together and be in this together and shouldn't really have so much negativity on our timeline. Just because it's a bear market doesn't mean that someone can't spend their money, you know? That's just my take, but sorry, going off on a tangent here. No, we love tangents on this show. Uh, this was tweeted by nftstatistics.eth, which is at punk1959. Uh, Most ETH volume over the last 24 hours, Pudgy Penguins at 972 ETH. That's about 270-ish more than punks. And about the same in terms of difference between bored apes. So it's definitely pudgy season, isn't it, Curtis? Yeah, and the other thing that they just uh, announced was this strategic board or an advisory board that has a bunch of who's who of people in NFT space. So I think there's a lot of bullishness around that because just the amount of people on that advisory board, the caliber of the people. And I think being able to recover from this and actually being delivering things, like they've they've pushed out the plushies, which look awesome. They've got the advisory board. They have a whole bunch of other stuff planned. And then you've got this huge sale. Yeah, I think people are, are buying the rumor. And uh, I guess we'll see what they can do with this advisory board and some of this momentum they've got going in into uh, the summer. Oh, yeah, I forgot. The advisory board is like really strong, too. Like the CEO of Nansen is like the head of their board. Partnerships at Meta as well, which is really interesting. The head of licensing from Hasbro, like lots, lots of really well-known people. So, I mean, but with advisors too, like this is why it's mostly a rumor at this point, advisors are part-time positions, usually unpaid. So some will put in quite a bit and it's kind of up to the project to utilize those advisors the best way. If you don't do anything, like the advisors are just going to continue doing their own stuff as, as it looks like these people are all very, very embedded in the NFT space. They're all doing their own thing. Like they're not going to make time for Pudgy unless Pudgy is actively like, hey, can you help us out with this or can you do this for us? So this is a great call out. Curtis, you hear a lot of people having a lot of advisors and advisory really is, you know, you get out of it what you put into it. So it'll be interesting to see what they do. Chris, I want to get your take on, I guess, the IP of NFT projects being acquired, like MA in Web3. We've talked about on the show a lot in terms of market goes down, those that have a lot of dry powder might look to take advantage of it. How big is your opportunity is it for people to look at projects that maybe have some strong, you know, visual IP or strong communities that maybe do need another reboot? I mean, we talked about Kobe in the last week's episode when we talked about him calling NFTs all coins with pictures, but apparently wanting to buy a Zuki. So a lot of very smart people are still very interested in having or being the you know governors of IP for an NFT project. So I'd love to get your take on, on that side of things. Nobody's proved yet that Web3 IP is really transferable into anything other than more Web3 stuff. So until someone does, I think it's mostly interesting in the context of building IP sets that can be used as Web3 grows. And so I think that's where I'm really bullish on things like Doodles, where the IP is very approachable and they're very clearly positioning themselves to expose a ton more people to it with things like Doodles 2 and you know, millions of items in a collection. I don't think there's any evidence to believe that the ownership of Web2, Web3 IP is going to, in the near term, drive outside of Web3 
value. But we've also not really seen the opposite yet, which is Web2 IP coming into Web3 and driving meaningful value. And really, that's all because the greatest opportunity to speculate is to create something where nothing was. And the creation of new Web3 IP that really has no purpose other than kind of hype and speculation has been the primary way to create value both for projects and for individuals buying. And so I think that's where the focus has been. There will be people who will get really successful doing this. And there'll be a few things that I think in the 10-year horizon will be remembered as prescient for having bought them now. But I I think it's going to look stupid before it looks smart, most likely. I think that's such a good point. I had this debate with someone on Twitter who is of a finance background, very much outside of Web3, actually is very much a crypto skeptic. And he was just kind of like, well, when people realize that like this Bored Ape thing isn't worth $4 billion because it hasn't translated into like any real life leveraging of that IP, then the bubble will burst. And I think that chasm is something that will be very interesting to see in terms of like how NFTs deal with crossing it um, from a culture perspective, because they've, I guess crypto has crossed the chasm of culture in the sense that like art collectibles sports, music, etc. has all been disrupted or in some way touched by Web3. But now it's like, how do those things translate to, you know, tangible value creation in the traditional model sense that we've been seeing over the last 20 years? And, and I'm going to be very interested to see, you know, what does the first big board Ape deal look like with a company that can help leverage and distribute that IP in a meaningful way? And I think the first big deal there will set the tone. At the same time, on the other side of that is, does it become a bit of a winner's takes all type of thing if only a few of the big blue chips manage to leverage it in that way, if that makes sense. Uh, there's a reason there's you know a thousand household name characters on TV. Different people are into different things. And that's where actually I don't think making the jump from Web3 to more conventional forms of media, I actually think the Web3 audience is the audience for these folks. They'll reach them through more channels as more people come there. But People in Web3 care about Bored Apes because of the cult of it being like one of the first really successful PFPs and all of the exclusivity that's tied to. I don't see why anyone outside of Web3 should give a shit about a relatively okay but not that great illustration of an ape. Uh, I think we've just found our quote to put at the start of the podcast. That's a really interesting debate though, isn't it? Like, can you reasonably expect a company like Yuga Labs and the IP that it holds to be worth that much if the audience is only Web3? Or can you say, well, actually, it's going down that supreme model where you have like not a huge audience or not a huge set of consumers, but your brand is still worth a lot? I would argue that's like saying, can a business be successful if it's only on the internet back in 2000? I think in time, Web3 will come to subsume most of what we know as the consumer internet and potentially beyond. So yes, the question is like, on what time horizon? I was just playing devil's advocate for everyone listening at home. Let's move on to our next topic. This is I, my hypothetical slam down of your hypothetical. <laughs> Look, hypothetical slam downs are basically podcasts, right? <laughs> the Bendow mass liquidation event. So for those of you who don't know, Bend, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, guys, because I'm, I wasn't an expert on this, but Bendow were essentially a DAO used for people to leverage, basically leverage trade NFTs. And they have recently gotten themselves in a bit of a pickle 
to the sound of only having 12 ETH collateral left in their DAO or something there or thereabouts, which is pretty crazy. And uh, obviously with the price dropping of NFTs, mass liquidations, and they came out with a statement essentially that said, we were basically taken by surprise at how illiquid NFTs were, which seems as though uh, this wasn't planned very well because NFTs are notoriously illiquid, especially, well, I mean, across the board, but especially for the projects that aren't blue chips and for the NFTs within those subsets that aren't rare. So yeah, I mean, Corwin, this is crazy. To me, I'd never heard of Ben Dow, but like, I actually can't believe this got so big. I, I don't know how much ETH was at some point collateralized, but I think it was in like the thousands, uh, which is pretty nuts. I think they saw like a thousand get withdrawn overnight. Like once this started becoming more known that they're going to be liquidating so many blue chip projects, um, which I think it was mostly like Bored Apes, Mutants, and like Clonexes. It's just crazy to see that you can use like a DAO liquidation platform and something new can be proposed to where they could actually change the roles on you to save their DAO as well, which I found really interesting is like, they have like this new proposal, like, hey, well, you know, we're actually going to liquidate at this rate instead of this rate, which is insane if you have like a hundred thousand dollar asset in there, right? And you got to pay it back, and now they just changed the rules on you after you already went into contract with them. So honestly, DAOs, it's it's crazy. I know a lot of things. I think I think Uniswap kind of put out a tweet today. I think it was them or someone on their team. Could be wrong on this, but. They're trying to make a way for NFTs to become more liquid, like making a protocol that every platform can use to help with liquidity, but definitely interesting to see. There was a great thread by, again, NFTstatistics.eth, Punk9059, who's now the uh, head of research at Proof, which seems to be a very good hire. A long thread on the Bendow situation, they've got 12.5 wrapped ETH left in the contract uh, and it says what does this mean people who lent money to others via Bendow to buy NFTs on Leverage can't pull their money out about 15,000 was lent which is nuts uh, it also means NFT borrowers must pay 100% interest on their borrowed ETH and for the debt against the NFTs is now rising quickly which is pretty nuts this is a really bad situation and obviously it's not completely comparable to what we've seen with the like liquidation of some DeFi protocols. But I do think it's quite interesting. I, I've spoken to a lot of people who are talking about NFT lending and like collateralizing NFTs. I saw Simon Taylor, good friend, former colleague, post something really interesting on LinkedIn about like the difficulties of creating a lending platform like that when the asset is very illiquid. But actually like when it boils down to it, it's kind of the same as using, I guess, art or other luxury items that are also fairly illiquid. So yeah, Curtis, I'd, I'd love to hear your your take on this uh, this ordeal. Yeah, this is an interesting one. So I hadn't heard of Bendow before um, researching this at all, but it's kind of crazy that to Korn's point, like you entered the DAO protocol thinking that your terms are one thing and now this proposal, if it passes, drastically disadvantages you as a borrower and completely changes the way that the whole protocol works. So that's that's kind of crazy, and I think Mike Dudas tweeted about this. Is like, was that made clear up front that that sort of kind of like the earth could be moved from underneath you? And if it's not, like in the future when these DAO-based protocols come up, hopefully people have learned like maybe we should look into the fine print and see exactly what governance can change on me here. The other crazy thing with this proposal is it changes a lot, and so 
you'd think in an emergency situation where you're trying to save the protocol, you would try to make the least amount of changes possible to like keep things going. And instead, some of the stuff they've proposed is quite radical, changing the liquidation times, the liquidation thresholds, even the starting bids. They basically have changed every single parameter they could change in their protocol. So I think it's, and, and some people have made the case that like there's one or two of those things you could have changed to make things a little better. You don't have to change everything at once. So yeah, it's it's interesting to see how fast they have they've changed everything and how drastic. I don't know why, and this is a complete tangent, but I saw I don't know if anyone's heard of Fay Protocol, but it was another stablecoin project that raised a ton of money from A16Z and a, and a load of others. Um, I think it had like a hundred. $88 million market cap, or maybe even bigger. It was a pretty large DeFi stablecoin. They recently shut down, and the way they were trying to kind of like preserve, or basically the way they were trying to work through the creditors' listings was in a way that basically meant the like founding team were able to like take a fair chunk of it. And I think there is an issue with DAO-based protocols, whether it's NFTs, DeFi, or, or anything else. I think the fail safes are obviously poor, but also the like what if scenarios aren't really well thought through in the sense that like, oh, what happens if like everyone gets liquidated or if people can't pay back their loans? What does that actually happen to the the platform and the protocol? And I, I think there needs to be a bit uh, less of a rush to launch things in Web3 generally and more of a like pragmatic approach to well this is the idea we want to do this but like what actually happens if x and y happens in the worst case scenario happens so i mean chris is like a web3 founder these are obviously things that kind of have to happen when you're building a company but i suppose in a decentralized community or dao these things are maybe not thought through as well can you pose that in the form of a question sorry (laughs) (laughs) the question is with what we've seen in this specific example with ben dao the mass liquidation. Should DAOs and decentralized communities have better kind of backup plans if their biz models fail in the same way that like traditional companies do? Like I just feel like decentralized communities and DAOs seem to try to ship a lot, which is great, but also maybe do so in a in a riskier way without any fallbacks. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Uh, I think there's like two ways of looking at it. One is, you know, anytime you sell somebody something, you know, you have a set of expectations that you know, you're representing that that thing is as you as you say it is and you know there's some law there, but there's also just some like best practice there. I think that in the case of things like DAOs where we're operating in such uncharted territory, there is a certain amount of move fast, see what works, try to react. I think what we see in the case of almost everyone who's tried to build a DeFi protocol or has tried to otherwise launch a token, what we see is the vast majority of the time, hey, let's try and figure it out, actually doesn't work. So my hope is that we're moving out of a stage of let's just try stuff, which does have value, and into a stage of we've actually seen that there are certain places that that doesn't work very well, and tokenomics in particular is one place that I think we can all say... Most people who've just tried stuff with tokenomics have absolutely fallen flat on their face and failed and everyone's lost a lot of money. That for those things, we're going to expect the bar to be a little bit higher. I think that one of the things that's great and challenging about a lot of this, and you know, Floor and Linkstow to some extent are the same way, in that they started as less than they became. And the question is, what is the moment in time 
where you kind of change your operating principles and you stop being, you know, a person or a small number of people on the internet just trying some stuff out and start holding yourself accountable to the level of like being a company. And for Floor, that moment was like very clearly when we incorporated the company, you know, honestly, we'd been operating with a level of discipline and intentionality that I think most projects don't before anyway. But I do think it is a, it is not an easy thing to manage. Like when do you wake up one day and all of a sudden stop being a small group of people trying to do a thing on the internet and become custodians who are responsible for millions of dollars of people's assets and maybe it's the amount of money involved, maybe it's the number of people, like I don't know what the right heuristic is, but clearly somewhere between that and holding thousands of ETH uh, of other people's money that you've now probably gone and lost, it seems like something should change. I, I think that's such a good point on like, what should the inflection point be? At what point do you get big enough or have enough money in your coffers or whatever the, the kind of threshold may be to then go and say, oh crap, like maybe we should think through, well, first and foremost in a positive way, like what could this become? It's gone so well to start with, like how do we expand, explore what the potential of this thing is, but also at the same time, like, well, what's the inverse of that in the sense of like if every single thing that could possibly go wrong went wrong, what would we then do? And I think the latter because crypto has become, and not become, but always been full of kind of moon boys and maybe optimists that don't think through things rather than optimists who do think through things. That is probably more prevalent than it than it should be. But yeah, another really, really interesting topic. And uh, we should get Simon Taylor on to talk about um, collateralized NFTs. That'd be, that'd be interesting. And always talk with Simon Taylor. <laughs> I, I think there's another piece that is worth remembering, which is the average agent experience of a person running a crypto project. So true. It naturally has attracted a group of kind of younger, less experienced, but more kind of open-minded and creative thinking folks. And with it comes a lack of operating experience, a lack of understanding what those risks even are. And it it definitely is very visible. And that's where I'm excited at Floor to have someone like a Christine, who's like a real operating partner in the business to make sure that we're not doing that. <laughs> it's so true though. Like I've met so many people that are like the head of operations or whatever, like the CMO of like a Web3 brand or platform who are kind of my age and that scares me because I'm like, you know, if I'd worked like every single day of my life up until now, I still wouldn't feel comfortable doing the role that you're doing, even if I was like 10 times smarter than myself. So it always does scare me that I'm like, oh, wow, there are so many people in the space who are winging it incredibly intelligent, but yeah, are winging it and maybe don't have that kind of operational know-how or experience. I really try and focus on experience here rather than age. Like I, I think there's a lot of a lot of folks who've got a lot of experience beyond their years and kind of vice versa. I think there is probably a certain amount of, it does take some time to have achieved some number of things and seen some number of things, but it's something I, I definitely tend to be triggered by as someone who was fortunate enough early in their career to found something and sat in a boardroom as a 21-year-old that everyone was pointing at and being like, who let that guy in the boardroom? One thing that this highlights, and I totally agree with what both of you guys are saying about like the experience level and some of the operators in the space are just haven't really done this stuff before. I wish, and I think this probably happens every time we do a turnover of technology, but I wish that there is less of a culture of like, Web2 obviously did everything wrong, let's just reinvent everything. And so we're just doing all the same mistakes that people who stood up financial instruments did. Instead, it'd be great to see the people looking back at like, okay, how do like houses get collateralized? How do, how do these other, like there's other illiquid assets that are leveraged for loans outside of Web3. So 
once you get to a certain point, pull in someone that does like art loans or something like that. Like, what do you guys do if like all the Picassos and all the Monets, like all that just, if the prices of those all tanked tomorrow, what do you guys do? Maybe we can incorporate some of that stuff into our DAO governance or into our protocol. Or I feel like still in Web3, it's a us versus them. So it's, we're going to do it. We're going to do it our way. We can't possibly learn anything from the old guard. But I, I wish we'd see more people bringing on like experienced operators and people with experience just to be like, yeah, I'll take your experience and I'll kind of mesh it with what we know in Web3 and maybe we come up with something better without repeating all these mistakes. I, I think that's an excellent point. I think there is the other side of it, though, in the sense that with crypto assets and digital assets, they are inherently more liquid, even if they are illiquid, if that makes sense. In the sense of like art dealership, right? There are going to be fewer trades, sales, buys, just because there is more friction in the purchase and the sale and the sending of the asset and like authenticating it, whatever it may be. And so I always think that with digital assets, you're always going to have more activity, but more potential to be just more volatile because floors can go up and down a lot more quickly. Like the buyer and seller don't have to interact because a smart contract does it for it. So I do think whilst like taking on some of the experiences and mistakes that maybe people have, have done in those industries, I do think there's going to be some really interesting things that have to be built to cope with just the kind of finality and instantaneous nature of Web3 and digital assets and, and the lack of like need for that middle bit, right? Like when you buy a sports collectible, like a signed jersey or whatever, you have to get it authenticated, someone has to send it to you, you have to send them the money, usually via an intermediary like eBay or whatever, and then they receive the money and then they send it to you. I guess with Web3, if I want to buy like a digital version of that jersey, I click like buy and I've got it in my MetaMask wallet. And I think that difference of saving you whatever, seven days worth of logistical stuff means that I think it inherently is tougher to create a system that works really, really well when that thing is the collateral. But anyway... I think we've... Uh... Is it tougher or just slower? Uh, and actually, I think in many places, the speed at which crypto operates is also our weakness in that there is in a perfectly efficient market, if no one is buying it right now, it means because no one wants it. Versus because, you know, oh, they ordered it, but it hasn't arrived yet. Or, you know, actually, they're not going to be home in three to five days, so they're going to wait a couple of days. And like, in a perfectly efficient market which crypto is relatively close to in terms of it is immediate, ownership is immediate and final. If no one has bought the thing, it is because there is not a buyer who is looking for the thing that is willing to pay the price at which it's offered. It's such a good point. And that's something I say to a lot of people that they are crypto skeptics. They hate the idea that like everything is financialized. And I'm like, it's not necessarily so, but like if I bought this physical water bottle, it doesn't instantly have a resale price. And why would it? Like no one would ever want it. It can be worn. It can be like who wants to drink out of a bottle that I've already drunk out of, etc. All that kind of stuff. But with the digital asset, there's no wear and tear. As Chris said, there's like the finality and the efficiency of like literally clicking buy wherever you are in the world, whether you're at home or whatever it may be. And I think that inherently means that things that we're not used to having secondary market value have secondary market value because we're cutting out all the fat in the middle, but also there's no wear and tear that you have with physical products. So I think there is like a bit of lateral thinking there as well that makes it feel like a lot of new stuff has to be built or done to make this a thing. Anyway, 
Before we move on, I need to remind you folks that we're a community-led podcast by the Floor NFT app community. And if you don't know what Floor is, it's your very own NFT portfolio in your pocket. An app that aggregates all your NFTs into one amazing interface, showing you price movements, latest sales, and so much more. For a final topic of the show, we're going to talk about the Ethereum merge. So shout out to Skinny Burt in the Floor Discord for raising this one and asking the tech whizzes on our podcast to get through this one. So the Ethereum merge is Ethereum's change from proof of work, a consensus mechanism to proof of stake. And it will have some implications to NFTs because most NFTs that have been created to date have been done on uh, Ethereum or Layer 2's of Ethereum. So, Curtis, Chris, can you give us an idiot's guide to the merge? <laughs> uh, I don't know about an idiot's guide, but I can say a, say a few words. And... By the way, that's not me saying the listeners are idiots. That's me saying I'm an idiot, just to clarify. Yeah, so I, I guess we'll start with why it's called the merge, because it's kind of a, a migration to a new uh, mechanism. So the way that Ethereum's approach this set of changes is uh, they're seeing it as separating out execution and consensus, where execution is kind of running smart contracts and transactions and distributing them, and consensus is kind of like running the network, voting and consensus management that used to be done by proving work through mining, but now is done by staking, by staking Ethereum. So what they've done is they've taken that new consensus mechanism and they've run it on its own chain for some period of time now. I actually don't know when that was stood up. Um, they called it the beacon chain. And that's been kind of running in parallel and proving that this consensus mechanism works. That's also why they've been encouraging validators to pre-stake ETH so that they have people to kind of run this test net of beacon, which is proving out the new uh, consensus mechanism. The merge is the moment where they take the kind of current production ETH blockchain and merge the beacon chain into it. And the, from every kind of transaction block forward from that, the consensus mechanism of the beacon chain will be the prevailing consensus mechanism. And anyone who's doing proof of work things will just be ignored, essentially. And so there should be no downtime. There should be kind of a single block after which we only listen to consensus that's derived from proof of stake. And theoretically, what will then happen is there's no incentive to mine. And so people should just stop mining ETH and... You know, the world should go on as it as it is. You know, that's actually not going to affect a lot for most people. Um, it's not going to make the network faster. It's not going to reduce gas prices. It definitely is going to have lots of benefits that in the future make it easier to do those things. But there are no inherent um, kind of consumer performance improvements in completing the merge. What is interesting is it looks like enough miners have now said that they intend to keep a fork of Ethereum going that does not respect the beacon merge, but rather uh, is going to continue driving consensus on that chain by proof of work. And so it may be that we end up with a not viable, or it may be that we end up with like a semi-viable uh, hard fork of the Ethereum network um, maintained by the miners. A lot of uh, projects and things have already come out and said they will only respect assets that exist on the proof of stake kind of Ethereum mainnet going forward. But I think that's one thing to watch that'll be really interesting. There may be an opportunity to sell your ETH on the uh, proof of work chain post post merge and you know get some free money. Who knows? Maybe it gets to zero really quickly. Yeah, that's kind of front of mind things to me that 
I'm watching, like, that moves the Ethereum network from proof-of-work to proof-of-stake. I think the numbers they gave were, like, 99.9-something reduction in energy usage, just because miners aren't going to be mining ETH anymore. I think what's interesting from an outside world perspective is the SEC in the U.S. is very hostile towards staking-based cryptocurrencies and has basically made an an exception for proof-of-work-based cryptocurrencies like ETH and Bitcoin. So I think there's like a lot of regulatory risk to think about there. It'll be interesting to see the noise that comes out of the SEC and Fed chair. Curtis, what am I missing? I took the easy stuff. You can take the hard stuff. I want to clarify the hard fork that potentially will happen because some miners want to stay on proof of work means that all your assets that you have, ETH balances, tokens, NFTs will exist on two chains. Now, the prices obviously will differ because proof of work should if all things work properly, rapidly those prices will go way, way down. So there won't be an opportunity for you to sell like an NFT on proof of work chain and make a bunch of ETH. But there is a kind of an outside chance that it opens us up to replay attacks, which I think Chris K mentioned last week. But um, just to simplify like what that is, if there's a hard fork, it's possible that a transaction you do on one fork of the chain could be replayed because it is valid, like it's got all the same signatures and cryptography underpinning it, you could, in certain protocols and and in certain ways, if there's a security vulnerability, you could replay that on another chain. So say you have a a board ape and you sell it on proof of work for like two ETH because that's now the price of board apes on that chain. Someone could actually replay that transaction on the other chain and have you sell your real board ape to them. Oh yeah, fascinating. Hopefully most protocols and everything. I mean, this is something that's been known for months and months and months. So hopefully there's a lot of stuff in place to prevent any sort of replay attacks. But that's just one thing that could happen. Like what Chris said, the one thing that is always reported is that this is going to make gas fees cheaper. And it's not. It's absolutely not. All this does is makes the energy usage drop by like 99.5%, which kind of removes a huge kind of social sticking point that a lot of people hang over East head, which is you guys are killing the planet with your proof of work. Now we can say, no, we're not. Uh, we're, we're basically using like tiny fraction of what we were using before. But uh, until the surge happens, which is after the merge, this is the next set of changes that are supposed to happen to Ethereum, gas prices are going to stay the same. All the way gas works staying the same, it's just the stuff that is powering the network in behind is now vastly, vastly more energy efficient. So let's talk about having double assets, one proof of work, proof of stake. Curtis, what are you going to do with yours? If you're not coding bots to take advantage of that in the first two or three blocks, there's probably nothing you can do. And anyone who's anyone is probably hiring coders to do this for them at the moment. So if you think you can beat out those people, have at it. I will probably do exactly nothing. And <laughs> My plan is do exactly nothing. Firstly, it seems like there's a decent chance you mess up and or get wrecked. But number two, if I end up really, really rich, I do not want when someone asks, how did you do it? <laughs> oh, like, I found a way to exploit the ETH merge pack when we moved to proof of work. Like, yes. <laughs> I basically got a lot of pudgy penguins that were fur- forked and sold them at a crazy price before people realized that they were worth nothing. Yeah, that'd be interesting. I saw some interesting debates on Twitter about whether or not some of the blue chip NFTs will be worth a fair bit on the forked chain. And that was interesting. I don't know if they will be, but like a really rare punk, a proof of work punk, <laughs> rolls of the tongue well. I wonder what someone would be willing to pay for that, even if it says like a commemorative type digital asset. I'm curious, like going back to Chris's point about regulation happening on with proof of stake and like 
SEC securities, and there's an exception right now for proof of work. What happens if the SEC comes down or the government comes down on the new forked Ethereum version? Then do we go back to proof of work? Like, how is this going to work? Are we just going to fork the proof of stake to go back to proof of work to like, and also like, what happens if like OpenSea just came out and was like, you know what, we're going to stay on the proof of work chain. Like, then there's just going to be like, there's going to be so much confusion. And are exchanges just going to be like, you know, what, like, because exchanges right now, I could go on and buy proof of, or I could go in and buy Ethereum Classic, right? Are exchanges just going to say, hey, we're not accepting proof of stake anymore if people if there's like a war going on well you gotta remember that like most exchanges will list stuff that has volume and if there's enough demand for the fork chain like the proof of work chain to be traded then they'll probably list it i I think marketplaces here and exchanges are two different things Hmm. i think that is probably true of exchanges in a world where we see meaningful price action on the proof of work chain i think certain exchanges the less scrupulous ones may do I think OpenSea knows it is in no one's best interest for OpenSea to become massively more confusing by having two copies of every single asset that exists on two chains. Like I think they know as well as everyone, they do not need a more complex, confusing, and more likely to rug people ecosystem. And so I don't think anyone is well incentivized to kind of lean into creating chaos and panic. And so I, I don't expect too many people to do that. The way you explained it, because it is a merge, like, if no one does anything and they just operate like normal, they will be on proof of stake. You'd actually have to go and make code changes or make changes to actually offer proof of work stuff. So I think that's what the inertia is there. That's like, whatever, <laughs> we'll just keep keep on doing what we're doing. The network is now proof of stake. Also, what will this look like for anyone who has like any new person in crypto or maybe doesn't have to be new necessarily, but someone who didn't hear about the merge, who isn't super, super involved, and I open up MetaMask or Rainbow Wallet and it's not updated to the latest version. Am I just thinking that it's like business as normal? All RPC nodes will point at the Ethereum mainnet, which as of that block will be proof of stake. This should be completely transparent to everyone. So like the main network is converting to proof of stake. If someone else decides to like take that last block and fork it and create their own new network, that's just a new thing. That's like ETH classic back in the day. It's a totally new network what is the incentive for apart from miners still wanting to make a lot of money mining is there any other incentive for people to continue consensus on the proof of work version of ethereum i think there's a lot of speculative incentives like if i'm a miner you know i get to keep mining you're right i think you could postulate that there's a decent chance that something on there becomes valuable it's essentially a chaos agent and i think someone's speculating that they're going to be able to do well on top of that on top of that chaos agent. I think like to Corin's question on the SEC, and I honestly picked most of this up from chatting with Christina over the past few weeks, the SEC is actually not the regulator for crypto. And so you know, the SEC can say whatever they want. It doesn't actually change anything in law. They there is a decent chance that they choose to go and sue and like prosecute someone. They have to prosecute an entity in this case. So they'll probably like go and prosecute Coinbase or Robinhood or someone. And what they'll do is they'll prosecute them under the basis that they are offering an unlicensed security and essentially use that case to set the precedent that whatever it is they prosecute is in fact a security and not a currency or whatever else. And so if they were to take that action, it would be to go sue Coinbase for listing Ethereum, which is a security without a securities license. 
Coinbase would say this isn't a security. They'd then go to court for three to five years and decide whether Coinbase is guilty, but in doing so, establish whether Ethereum is a security under uh, US securities law. And so they won't change anything overnight except confidence. And so, no, like if the SEC declares that they are likely to are investigating or likely to bring charges against Coinbase, I don't think we roll back to proof of work. I do think it will be reflected in the price, though. Like, I think it would create a confidence challenge in the market. And yeah, like if you're the proof of work guys, maybe part of your speculation is we think in three to five years when you know that happens, maybe there's an opportunity that said at that point, the networks become sufficiently divergent that it's no longer really useful for. Wow. I think on that note, we'll uh, move on to the floor section. And just a reminder that community questions, we actually took all your topics and community questions and moved them into the main part of the show. So we've already done that bit. Chris, what's the latest from floor? Oh, man. So if you didn't see it, go check out the town hall from two weeks ago. We launched app passes. Uh, Anyone with a Genesis token should now be able to invite a friend to floor, which really excited about. Thousands of you have now invited a friend, which is super cool and bringing lots of new friends into our Discord and into the app. Uh, We're actually launching Collection Search uh, in the next uh, week-ish. So that's been, I think, the most uh, requested feature since we announced Discover last week and watched Collections. And then in the next few weeks, we have a bunch of really exciting announcements coming up that I won't ruin here. Uh, But the next two or three weeks are pretty exciting, bringing us up to our next town hall, which will be in probably about three weeks. They come together really, really quickly. You just think you've finished a town hall and then it's time for town hall again. And you're like, ah, but what are we going to talk about this time? And you're like, oh, wait, no, we've actually done a ton of stuff. What is time anymore? Well, you heard it there. Lots of announcements to come. For now, though, we'll wrap things up. And thank you so much, everyone, for listening and asking your questions, submitting your topics. You can find us on Twitter at The Floorcast and you can find Corwin at... Zero X Corwin on Twitter or in the Floor Discord. You can find Chris and Floor NFTs at myself at Chris Madden on Twitter and for Floor at Floor NFTs. Yourself, Curtis. Curtis J Cummings on Twitter and in Discord, hanging out mostly with the DGens and Floor. <laughs> you can find me at P E T B R I S H A on Twitter and please do subscribe if you haven't done so already and leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. And just remember that none of what we have said today is financial advice, just great advice. 